Well, we are in this series on the book of Acts, and we find ourselves now in Acts chapter 21. So if, you're, if you've got your Bibles with you, you can flip over to Acts 21. And by the way, if you ever forget your Bible, um, there's a paperback Bible in the lobby. There's a box of them that you can borrow um, on a Sunday so that you can follow along with us. But here we are in Acts 21, and we're going to be looking at Paul and as his journeys continue and, uh, and the, the course that they take and the adventures that he faces. But before we get to that, I want to sort of talk to you. The, the, the title of our, of our talk this morning is called A Christ-Shaped Life. Uh, what does it mean to live a Christ-shaped life? Now, we have young children in our house, and we're homeschooling our oldest, Sophia, who's seven, and, uh, and Nora is five, and you know, she sort of follows along and kind of learns by default, you know, sort of picking up all the stuff. And, uh, and you, know, you, you learn with children different personalities that they have and which ones kind of get more excited about what subjects and all of that. And, uh, and Sophia, bless her heart, is good at, at many, many, many things, uh, but handwriting is not one of them. And, uh, and Nora, who's younger, loves handwriting. I mean, she's sort of our fine motor skills artist sort of child, and so she really relishes the, the ability to write her letters just perfectly. And we've thought, man, do we need to sort of go back? Because I, I remember as a kid having letters outlined for you with like sort of the dotted line kind of thing, and then you trace them, and that's how you learn to write. Uh, I'm in seminary at the moment, and this quarter I'm learning Greek, biblical Greek. And uh, yes, it's, it's all Greek to me, all those jokes abound, yes. Um, but, but there's a couple of you that are in class with me, and so we're kind of learning a whole new alphabet. And, and so I find myself at 34 tracing lines of another alphabet. And my kids, of course, find great joy in seeing Dad do his worksheet tracing his letters. But if you think about it, imitation always precedes originality. Imitation kind of precedes originality. I mean, a lot of you are artists, you're songwriters or musicians or different sorts of art, and you understand that, that everybody wants to create something new, but if you think about it, the way you learn a craft is first by imitating something else. Good musicians become good musicians by playing good pieces of music or other compositions or listening to other composers and saying, I'm going to try to do this. I remember uh, when I was in middle school, I, was playing, I, I played the trumpet. And uh, don't, don't ask me to play it now because it's been too long. But, but I, I played for a short while and uh, I remember sort of getting these Roy Hargrove, is it, or Miles Davis cassettes of these different jazz recordings and thinking, okay, if I could just imitate this, and I couldn't, uh, which is why the trumpet thing was short-lived in my life. But you, you find different patterns and you say, if I can imitate that, then I'll become good at it. Or when uh, I was 10, uh, we moved from Malaysia to Portland, Oregon, and I discovered that the sport that was all the rage in the late 80s and early 90s was basketball. And we lived in Portland, Oregon, so the, tr- the Blazers, the Trail Blazers, before they became the Jail Blazers, were, a li- were, pretty, were pretty good at the time. And so, and so I was really into basketball. And of course, this was the beginning of the Jordan era. You know, I mean, Jordan was just starting to kind of really break through and break out. And so every 13-year-old boy in my sixth grade class had a red sort of sweat wristband thing and a kind of a mock knee brace, even though there was nothing wrong with their 13-year-old knees. And because Jordan had it, you know, and they had the high tops. And then if they were doing a layup, they would go like this. You know, with their tongue sticking out. And I don't know if it made them shoot the ball better or anything, but it was just this imitation thing. You see something that captures your imagination, and then you imitate it in the hopes that you could actually become it. Well, we, this is how we learn. This is how we grow. And so there's this peculiar verse that we just heard in our New Testament reading from 1 Peter 2. And it says this, it says, You were called to this kind of endurance 
because Christ suffered on your behalf and He left you an example that you might follow in His footsteps. Now this word example is an interesting word. And, and by the way, the first hour of the first class in Greek, our professor said, don't you ever in a sermon say, in the Greek it says, you know. So I, I, I'm, I'm torn here because there's a really good example that he gave us as a class. And so his reason, by the way, for saying don't ever say in the Greek it says is because he doesn't want preachers to sort of bully people into thinking that you don't really know and I know. Um, and the truth is, with the tools and resources and really good commentaries, you can all know what I know. It's all accessible there. So, so when I asked him, I said, well, can I use this particular thing that you mentioned in class? He says, okay, but don't quote me, so I'm not quoting him. Um, <laughs> and, and, he, and, he said, and he said, and here's the book or the commentary that it's found in, and so you, know, you can find it yourself. You know. But this word example is this Greek word, hypogrammos, and it only appears once, hypogrammos, it only appears once in the New Testament, and it's in this verse. And the, the idea behind this word is to trace. In fact, the, the image or, the, or the, the, the usage of this word is most common with school children learning to write Greek letters. And they would have these slates or these tablets with faintly written in words that students would have to trace over. Now think about what Peter is saying. Jesus Christ is your letters that you are supposed to trace your own life over. Or if you like another image, an art image, Jesus is the stencil that our life sort of takes its shape from. That we kind of trace this shape, the shape of His life. We, we follow this to imitate the life of Christ, is to take on His shape, to retrace His steps, to go over it. Now this is interesting because there's probably two ways we've, we've heard um, Jesus' life being talked about. On the one hand, you, people will say, well, look, Jesus is the perfect thing, so you've got to be this or else God won't be happy. And it kind of pushes us into a works kind of thing. But on the other hand, you hear, well, Jesus came to die for your sins, so it really doesn't matter how he lived as long as you know that he died for your sins. But that's not quite right either, is it? Because the whole of Christ's life, his life, his death, his resurrection, all of it saves us. And we are saved because of His work. And then, having been saved, we are given the power to now imitate His example. So being called to follow Jesus is a call that, yes, it saves us by His work and not ours, but this call calls us into a new direction, right? It calls us to trace this shape. To say, this is the Christ-shaped life and this is how you are to live. Well, what is it? What is the Christ-shaped life? For centuries, the church, when they talked about spiritual formation, they said what it means to grow up, or what does it mean to be discipled. For, you, for centuries, the church would say, look, it means that essentially our life takes on the shape of Christ on the cross. It becomes the, the, the Christ who laid down His life. And so it's very possible to draw out different elements of the Christ shaped life. You could say it's self-giving love and you would be right. You could say it's this selflessness or again self-giving love. You would be correct. But this morning what we see in Paul and almost the consciousness in Paul's own life is that he's imitating the life of Christ with regard to the word obedience. Paul has an obedience that 
if you'd like to call it this this morning, you could say it's an even when kind of obedience. It's an obedience even when. An even when kind of obedience. Not a when it's convenient sort of obedience. Which someone has said, you know, you, you don't really know obedience until the instruction is something you wouldn't have chosen anyway. That's a lesson I'm, we're working on with our kids, you know. It's great that you listen and obey when we say, let's go to Lulu's and have frozen yogurt. Oh, they run in the car, right? It's different to say, to listen and obey when it's bedtime and time to, you know, because obedience really becomes obedience when it's not something you would choose. And so the, it's, Paul is beginning to live out an even when sort of obedience. So pick up with me in verse 10. Paul's making his way, and he's making his way down to Jerusalem. Uh, we know from the last chapter, he's, he senses that the Lord has called him to this, and this is his route. Eventually, he's going to go to Rome. That's his goal. That's his final destination. He wants to confront Caesar with the good news of Jesus' lordship. But in verse 10, he's on his way, and he says, after, it says, After staying there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And he came to us and took Paul's belt and tied his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In Jerusalem, the Jews will bind the man who owns this belt. Nice prophetic language here. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles. And when we heard this, now catch this, Luke is now using first person language, we, as if he's here in this. And possibly he was. And he's saying, almost recalling it with the emotion of having been there. And he says, when we heard this, we and the local believers urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Pleaded with him. Don't do it, Paul. And Paul replied, why are you doing this? Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be arrested, but even to die in Jerusalem for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus. And since we couldn't talk him out of it, I mean, can you imagine? Since we couldn't talk him out of it, the only thing we could say was, the Lord's will be done. Now, if you've read the story, there's an earlier verse in this chapter where it says the other believers, through the Holy Spirit, tried to persuade Paul not to do this. And you get the sense that it's, maybe it's very similar to what's happened here with Agabus, where all the prophet is saying is that hardship is coming. He's not saying the Holy Spirit says not to go, is he? Prediction is not the same thing as prohibiting. Predicting is not the same thing as prohibiting. So the prophet is seeing into the future somehow and saying there's hardship that's going to come of this. But then the believers out of their love for Paul add on the rest and say, well, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't go. You shouldn't do this. This is, this is going to be tough. A Christ-shaped life means... And obedience even when God says there will be opposition. And obedience even when God says there will be opposition. This is something that's tricky for us as modern Christians because we have no idea, most of us, some of you do because you've lived overseas, but most of us have very little idea what it's like to be a Christian in the margins of society. Most of us don't know what it means to be a Christian where there is opposition the moment you say yes to Jesus. I told you last week that my dad is here uh, visiting from Malaysia and he's here helping us out and, and the amazing story of that, of how he came and all this. But, but as I think about my, my dad's life, we were talking about more of, of his story the other night. and 
He was telling me more about what it was like when he, coming from a Hindu family, decided to renounce Hinduism and follow Jesus. And the impact that that had on his family relationships and parents who wouldn't talk to him, siblings who never came and visited for years. That's, there's a kind of opposition that takes place when you say yes to Jesus. And I, you know, I, I think for us, it's because we don't face it physically, we can forget that there still is a spiritual enemy. There still is an adversary. The, the, the name of Satan is not so much a proper name as it is the adversary, the one who opposes. His name, by definition, is the one who is adversarial to you. And so there is, there is something, someone at work that is opposing us as we try to follow Jesus. Now, that you, can, you can take this and become weird with it and start sort of doing the Ghostbusters, hunting for demons in every bush kind of thing, you know. But on the other hand, we could ignore it and imagine that, oh, this is fine, I said yes to Jesus, and who cares? But really, as we talked about a few weeks ago, really when you understand that saying yes to Jesus as king... All of a sudden, it puts every other power on notice, doesn't it? It's, it's, it, it, it puts every other person and, and thing and idea and ideology and nation or whatever that exalts itself, against. it puts them on notice and you'll feel the opposition of that. In fact, you ought to feel the opposition from that. The British theologian N.T. Wright once joked, he said, wherever Paul went on his missionary journeys, there were riots. Wherever I go, they serve tea. You know? I'm sure as a good Englishman, he wasn't opposed to them serving tea, but the point being that how, is there something that we have gotten accustomed to with comfort, something that we've gotten used to saying, well, our life is, you know, we, we just need to, you know, be wise and, and, and do this, and, and, and there's, there is room for wisdom, but I wonder sometimes if we use wisdom as a cloak for our own fear and safety, and maybe we, we need to sort of get out of our shell and take a meal to someone during Thanksgiving that is in a neighborhood that you wouldn't otherwise go to. Maybe that's a big step for you. I'm looking at Corbin and Katrina who are moving to Nepal in a couple months and they've been in India for several months and now they're going to Nepal and they're tent makers and they've got an amazing ministry or business slash ministry that is going to employ workers that are being rescued from the sex trafficking trade. And they're, they're, they're training them with skills and, and all of this stuff. And you think about, that's an incredible risk to do. That's an even when kind of obedience. That's an obedience. Even when God says, you know, there, there, there's probably going to be opposition when you do that. There's going to be, you think, you think um, uh, everything in the Nepali government is sort of going to open their arms and say, oh, welcome, please do this and please do that. You think infrastructure is going to work perfectly? I, we pray it does. But even when God warns that there will be obstacles and oppositions, it's the, the Christ-shaped life says obedience, says yes to God, even when. Secondly, a Christ-shaped life means obedience even when those who love us try to discourage us. Now, this is tough. This is tough because people love us. And nobody who loves you wants to see hardship come on you. Nobody who loves you is going to say, look, I am pretty sure that if you obey God in this, it's going to make life more difficult for you. It's very hard for someone who loves you to say, and I think you should just go ahead and do it. Most people are going to be tearful about it and say, are you sure? I mean, do you want to rethink this? I mean, this is kind of a big deal. I mean, you, you know, you could make more money if you did this. And 
I mean, don't you want to think about this and, and that? And are you sure about this, this choice? And the, the trick with all of this, you know, uh, <laughs> the curse of being a preacher is if you don't say everything you believe in one sermon, people will accuse you of being a heretic, you know? So, well, you only said this thing. Well, that was our text today, you know? But I find myself saying, look, wanting to acknowledge the tension here because we are supposed to seek counsel from others and say, hey, what do you think? Is this, and what am I not seeing? Where am I being foolish? Where am I being foolhardy? We don't, we don't need to be, we don't need machismo in the kin- kingdom of God. We don't need people who are sort of foolhardy and say, who cares? Let's just do it. You know, we, we, you know there's, a, there's a great book about sort of a foreign aid called When Helping Hurts. And that's kind of the thing of when, when, when people say, well, let's just go do this and this is And nobody's thinking about long-term sustainability, all the stuff, you know. And, and so there is need to, to not be foolhardy, and there is need to sort of think through this stuff. And yet, is it possible, I wonder, to keep talking to people until you find the one who tells you what you want to hear? <laughs> is it possible to keep talking to a person until you find the person who says, okay, you know, you, know, you, you really you, you shouldn't do this. Thank you. You know, that's what I was really sort of thinking too. Yeah, it's possible to do that. You know, human love, Holly and I talk a lot about this as parents because it's, it's a very difficult concept to wrap our minds around, but human love, we sort of think that the highest expression of human love is protection, right? That those whom you love the most, you would protect the most. And I think that way. I mean, it's not like I think, yo, that's foolish. I think that. I want to protect the people that I love the most. But God has this really different sort of grid that says, you know, protection is good, but redemption is better. Protection, sort of preventing, preventing this from happening is good, but there's a redemption. redemption is actually more powerful than prevention. Redemption is more powerful than prevention. Now that's, again, easy to say, hard to swallow as a parent or as friends of others. We think, well, should we try to sort of prevent everything that we can? And how, what do you mean redemption? I think Paul was so convinced about the death and resurrection of Jesus that he believed in a God who even when the worst day in history happened, the day Jesus died, right? The day God sends His Son into the world and political powers and religious powers collude together to kill Him. That's a pretty bad day. That's a dark day. In fact, it is such a bad day that poetically the world became dark at noon. And yet Paul says, I believe in a God who used that event to rescue and redeem the whole world. And on Sunday morning made resurrection happen, and resurrection was so much better than prevention of the cross, that I believe that if I obey Jesus, even if the worst happened, he says to his friends, I'm ready to to die for the sake of the name, because Paul somehow believed that even if the worst thing imaginable happened, that there is a God who has a power that's stronger than prevention. It's the resurrection power of God. Folks, we've got to believe that. Our whole lives will be gripped by fear forever if we don't believe that. 
if we don't believe in a God who will one day raise, the, raise up those who believe in Christ and give us these new bodies that cannot wear down and cannot deteriorate, if we believe in the resurrection, a God who will put the cosmos back together, then we believe in a God who says, all right, do your worst. Because when you're done, I'll bring the most beautiful life out of it more than you could ever have imagined. I confess that I don't fully grasp that, but I want to. I want to know Christ in the power of His resurrection and in the fellowship of His sufferings. I want to be able to say, Jesus, bend me into the shape of Your life so that I can say, I would rather lay my life down than take another's. Think about the Jesus who in the garden tells Peter, put the sword away. This is what obedience means for me. And I'll go to the cross. That's difficult to swallow. That's difficult to imagine because friends and those who love us are going to always say, choose protection, choose prevention, choose avoidance. Don't choose the difficult road. And something about Jesus calls us and says, look, if this is obedience to God, then say yes. Because even if the worst happens, resurrection power is stronger. God is stronger. God is stronger. Easy to say. Hard to live out. Jesus, of course, had one of His closest try to dissuade Him from the cross. you remember this? Peter says, Lord, may it never be. Jesus starts talking about the Son of Man will be taken and will be crucified. Oh my goodness, Lord, no, may it never be. And you remember what Jesus says to Peter? Those kind, loving, gentle words. Get thee behind me, Satan. Satan. (laughs) Jesus had an Ace Ventura moment. (laughs) Because he says that this is it. And actually... The very words in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus says, take this cup from me because I wouldn't choose it. And this is where, again, so the, you know, the flip side, we've got to be willing to, to obey even when, right? But on, on the flip side, we don't have to be gluttons for punishment. We're not the sort of people who believe that it's holier to, to choose the more difficult road than the simple one. That, that's not, you know... You know, when you're young people, when you're sorting out God's will for your life, you don't have to say, well, let's see, what's the very hardest one? And that must be God's will. No, that's not what this is saying. This is about obedience, even if it means choosing the harder road. Does that make sense? This is not saying that the harder road is automatically the holier road. That's not it. But it's saying obedience. So Jesus, Jesus is saying, Lord, is there any other way? Because I'm not eager to do this one. Right? In the same way Jesus taught His disciples, He said, pray, Lord, do not lead us into the, the time of testing. We ought to, as Christians, not be so eager to say, well, bring on the persecution. All right, come on, let's do it, Lord. What? No, we're supposed to pray, Lord, don't lead us into it. If there's another way. But the, the, the trick is, there are probably going to be moments in your life where you just know, look, now to obey God means to choose this. And all my loved ones are saying, no, please don't. But I must echo the words of Jesus in the garden that says, Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And that is what his friends say to him. 
Eventually, Paul's friends say, okay, since we couldn't talk you out of it, may the Lord's will be done. I, I um, feel very grateful to have had parents that always said this to my sister and I, who have always said, look, if this is the Lord's will for your life, the direction for life, then let the Lord's will be done, even if it means you moving halfway across the world, even if it means this, even if it means more difficult, because we, we trust that this is what you must be obedient to. And of course they would say that because that's the very life they modeled for us. When I was 10 and my sister was 13, my mom was teaching English part-time and my dad had a great job at an advertising agency, lots of perks of the job and, um, and, and, and uh, memberships at you know, tennis clubs and whatnots that the company, you know, all those sorts of perks and privileges. And, and the Lord spoke very clearly to both of them and said, it's time to go to Bible school. And this is the Bible school you know, that kind of was on their heart to go to. They would say, the Lord said, this is where you're supposed to go. And so you think about giving up that job, you think about giving up that life, and moving the whole family all the way to Portland, Oregon, and my dad traded an executive desk for a janitor's vacuum cleaner because the only job an international student could get would be to work for the Bible college itself. And so he worked for minimum wage back in the 80s, five bucks or so an hour, vacuuming the hallways of the church in late hours of the night. You think, well, hey, you know, hey, I mean, that's, I don't know if that's wise, David, you know, like, you had friends that said that. Well, you got to think about your kid's education, you got to think about their future, I mean, how wise is this, you know? But you knew that this was what the Lord was saying. And parents, I, 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 I would say this from the vantage point of having been a child through those years, there are many things you can give to your children, and financial security is great if you're able to do that. But teaching your children to obey the Lord Jesus at all costs is a far more valuable lesson. Teaching your children to say, you know, we'll, we'll do something risky if it means obeying Jesus. Teaching your children that obedience is better than sacrifice. Teaching your children that saying yes to Jesus even when it hurts, even when there's risk. See, we kind of live in this age, and we're aware of it as parents, and we're tempted in this way too, but it's sort of the helicopter parent thing, you know? Just hover over, prevent everything, protect everything. And I'm not saying take stupid risks and let your kids play in the streets. I'm not talking about that sort of stuff. I'm talking about teaching your children that there is a Jesus who is worthy of our obedience, even if it means something costly. And that the most loving thing a friend or a parent can say in the end is, nevertheless, the Lord's will be done for your life. I don't know if I want you to go on this mission trip. Swaziland, where is that? Africa. Nevertheless, the Lord's will be done for your life. Yes, we want to say yes to this. And you think about the message or the legacy that that sends. Finally, later on in the text, it kind of goes on, we didn't read it just for the sake of time, but when Paul arrives in Jerusalem, the, the, the leaders meet him and they say, okay, Paul, listen, uh, there's, people are saying, people are talking about you, and they're saying that you're telling the Jews that they don't need to observe the law, and they don't need this, and they don't need that. And, and half of it is false. Some of it's, you know, like every good rumor, some of it's true, and some of it's totally false. 
And so they say to Paul, they're like, Paul, you, you know what you should do? You've got these guys with you. You need to pay for everyone's purification rites. Get them to shave their heads and then bring them into the temple with you so everyone will know that you're not really that guy. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Where people have misunderstood you, kind of misjudged you, and you're like, the pride in you says, well, I'm not going to pander to that. And then after thinking about it, you sort of humble yourself and say, all right, fine. If this is what will keep them from being upset, I'll do that, you know. For me, that, in my 20s, that was putting on a tie. I'm not going to wear a tie. Anyway, I, I, I jest. But a Christ-shaped life means obedience even when zealots misjudge us and we don't fit in. So Paul goes through this whole rigmarole and he has these guys, their purification rites paid for and all this stuff. And they go into the temple and guess what happens? They still misjudge him. They have more rumors that circulate. And then a riot breaks out and Paul's like, dude, I can't win. I'm like trying to show them that I'm a Jew. I believe this stuff. And the people are like, nope, you don't. You brought in a Greek. And he's like, no, I, I didn't. Yes, you did, Paul. Riot, riot. And he's like, what? What's happening? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20. He says, I act like a Jew to the Jews so I can recruit Jews. Pretty straightforward. I act like I'm under the law to those who are under the law so I can recruit those who are under the law, parentheses, though I myself am not under the law. This is Paul sort of being like 007, you know, like, like I, I can go in this world, I can do that, but I'm not really going to, you know. There are times when following Jesus, in fact, I would say, following Jesus is going to mean that you won't easily fit into people's little subgroups. It's going to mean that. In fact, you should be nervous when you fit so cleanly into one person's subgroup. Jesus said in Luke 6, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. <laughs> it means you've got the wrong friends. <laughs> you're in the wrong circles. If you're only in the circles where everyone speaks well of you, something's wrong. Either your friends are all homogenous or you're not really following Jesus. Because you'll find yourself in situations where you're like, Yes. No, uh-huh, to that, but also that. And people are like, well, which label are you? And religious zealots tend to be the ones who will quickly misjudge you. Zealots are the ones who will quickly sort of say, hey, hey, whoa, 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 how come, hey, Paul, did you know that Paul is doing this? Paul's a liberal with, with regard to the Torah? He's telling Jews they don't need to do this and do that. And Paul's like, whoa, whoa, I never said that. It's funny how things spread, isn't it? Isn't it interesting? You say this, you, you go to one thing and you're like, oh, you know, I saw Glenn at this thing. Or you assume that somebody's associations define who they are. That where they end up. So, or someone's choices. or someone's, So, so a, a mother works outside of the home and then all of a sudden people whisper, oh, well, you know, I mean, they they're probably like a feminist liberal who doesn't believe in, like, you know, motherhood. <laughs> or someone makes a choice to homeschool their children. Oh, well, you know, they're probably just afraid that the world is going to pollute their children. They're probably wearing denim jumpers and singing Kumbaya, you know. <laughs> and everybody thinks they know you, but they don't. Welcome to the life of following Jesus. Because it's going to be like that. 
And we, Holly and I, earlier this year when we were praying through this choice of like, are we going to homeschool Sophia? And we love, you know, we appreciate teachers. We love schools. There's a lot of work to be done across the board in, in educating a new generation. And this is a sort of a personal kind of decision. And, and we were talking about it for a long time. And we're like, man, we just wish we had more clarity, you know. And we kind of looked at each other and we're like, hey, yeah, maybe we don't need more clarity. Maybe we just need a little more courage, you know, a courage to be prepared for like the fact that I'm saying yes to this, but that doesn't mean I'm saying no to this. And that you, right? And here's Paul kind of finding himself in complicated associations, trying to follow Jesus all the while and being misunderstood left and right. That's the life. That's the life for you and me. I think about the, the, the brave and noble men and women in our congregation who serve in the military. There are sometimes tricky associations with that. And so people assume, oh, I suppose you're a hateful, warmongering, da 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 da. No. I'm trying to be noble. I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to be, a, be an influence here and, and protect here. And, and I'm trying to be a light to some very, in some very dark places. Oh. Can I encourage you to not be the kinds of zealots that mislabel people? Or that are quick to assume that you know somebody's story because you know. I mean, think about us, New Life downtown. Some, some of you have said, can you drop the New Life? It's like, I mean, I think, like, I think we'd have more people coming if we just didn't have the New Life part. <laughs> I, uh, I get some wonderful ideas um, from people. But you know, it's, it's part of our story. What else am I going to drop? Any association that has any sort of, you know, take the time to get to know us. Take the time to get to know me. Take the time to get to know this community before you believe a label that someone puts on it. Amen to that? And on the flip side, be willing to let your obedience to Jesus put you in some uncomfortable situations. Someone says, where do you fit? Well... Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. He's not talking necessarily about, oh, I'm physically home. He's saying, look, who wants to claim me as theirs? Nobody. Think about, there were a lot of powerful groups in Jesus' day. One group was the Zealots. And they believed if they would pick a fight with Rome, God would be forced into finishing it. And so the kingdom of God would come. And Jesus said, I'm not really with that. And then there were the Pharisees that said, look, if we could obey God more righteously, then God would fulfill his promise and bless Israel. And Jesus says, yeah, but your righteousness kind of stinks. How dare you? Then you had the Sadducees who said, you know what, we kind of run the temple, and if we could just sort of cozy up with local political rule, we could have religious rule allied with political rule, and then the kingdom of God would come. And Jesus says, I'm not with y'all either. And they all got mad at him and killed him. It's time to stop pretending that the Jesus-shaped life is just all roses. Jesus invites us to a life that's going to, at times, make you feel on your own. going to make you feel alone. But here's the beauty of it is when you suffer for your obedience to Jesus, 
you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. There is never a moment, there are few moments where you're closer to Christ than in the moments where you suffer for the sake of His own name and obedience to Him. Do you know that? So Paul said, he said, I want to know Him intimately in the fellowship of His sufferings. Paul's idea of knowing Jesus was not a goosebump moment in a 20-minute refrain on a worship song. Paul's idea of intimately knowing Jesus was saying, I will retrace the shape of His life. So Jesus set His face toward Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem. Jesus knew the cross awaited Him. I know that sufferings await me. Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. I will say, let the Lord's will be done. Do you see this? And in doing that, Paul embeds his life in the life of Christ. And he says, this is what it means to know Christ, is to put my life inside of him, to share in it, to participate in it. I am with you, Jesus. And God looks down and says, and I am with you. In the Old Testament, we speak of God being near the broken. But in Jesus, God became the broken. 